Okay. Ready to zip through the intimations out incredibly quickly. Sorry? Yeah, I doubt it. Um, but yes, that is a reminder that we won't be having class on Thursday. Um, so, and we will make that up at some point. Um, make it up as we go along, to quote David Byrne. Good weekend? Sort of? Page 796. Um, Maya sent an amazing, <laughs> horrifying version of the duck rabbit, um, which if people want to see, it's actually a profile full face. Um, and uh, it's it's a pretty good it's a pretty good example of it. It's also partly interesting because um, seeing faces is what our brains do best. That's the kind of seeing we do best. Um, so it's really disturbing um, not to know whether this is a full face photograph or a profile photograph. It's um, um, yeah. So ask Maya if you're curious. Um, all right, let us go to page 796 and notice that the intimations of begins with a motto. A lot of people will call this an epigraph. Um, that's actually not technically the right word, but it's come to be the right word, but a motto. Um, and the motto is, the child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each <coughs> by natural piety. And as the footnote will tell you, that's the poem just above it in the Norton anthology. That is, it's the poem, My Heart Leaps Up, one of uh, what are called the lyrical ballads. Um, my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it. Now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. And then those three lines, the child is father of the man and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. What's a very quick uh, summary, paraphrase of that poem? Nine lines. Yeah. I'd rather die than lose that, that divine inspiration that I've had since I was a child. Yeah. Um, and in particular, the inspiration that um, I get when I see a rainbow. Um, it's something, the rainbow itself. What is the rainbow in the Bible, do people know? It's a symbol of God's promise to, to human beings that he will no longer wipe, off, wipe us off the face of the earth again. At least not by flood. <laughs> you know, Volcan there, Volcanoes are still alive. Yeah, there are three other elements that could do it, but water, not so much. Um, Okay, so it's, it's God's covenant in Genesis. Everyone knew that? That, um, that the story of Noah is like so many stories in Genesis, um, a just-so story. Um, that is that a whole lot of ancient, ancient mythology you probably know is how things got to be the way they are, why the um, Narcissus flower grows by water and why it bends over instead of like other flowers growing straight up. 
or why there's a ship-shaped rock outside of the harbor of the island of Ithaca in the Aegean, or why um, some trees are evergreen, or why the um, why reeds are hollow. Um, gigantic story with that as the outcome, a hollow reed or a ship-shaped rock or um, um, a narcissus growing by the water or echo, echoing um, in caves and woods and hills. Um, so Genesis tells the story of why the snake has no legs. Why? As punishment. As punishment. Um, <clears throat> And among other stories, it tells the story of um, why there's a rainbow. And in order to tell that story, the answer is, well, there was Noah, and there was a flood, and there was disaster and horror and so on, and the result was a rainbow. I mean, I don't think, I think it's sort of a, a cheapening of the story a little bit. It's not really, that's not really what it's about. That's just the outcome. Yeah, that's true. The, this is one of those um, vehicle versus tenor things. That's always true. You could say it's a cheapening of the story of Narcissus to say, look, a flower. Yes. Um, whereas that's actually a story about desperate and unhappy love and um, melancholy and, um, and despair. Um, so no, it's not a cheapening of the story. It's an enriching of the natural environment. Um, so the rainbow stands for God's covenant with humanity that after the rain there, the sun will come out again and there will be something beautiful to remind us um, that rain is limited and followed by sunshine and beauty. Um, so for Wordsworth picking the rainbow probably, Wordsworth um, tends not to use symbols. Um, when he does, they're significant. Um, Picking the rainbow has to have something to do with the idea of a covenant between, as he himself puts it, um, natural piety, which means something like piety about nature, that is, um, nature itself is worth our um, feelings of respect and wonder and piety, something that um, sometimes gets captured in the idea of pantheism that, um, as Blake puts it, all that lives is holy. Everything that lives is holy. He puts it a couple of different ways. Um, and also, piety that arises naturally, spontaneously. My heart leaps up. It wasn't that I said to myself, oh, God requires me to worship him. What shall I do? Oh, there is his rainbow that reminds me of the covenant, and now I shall say pious things about it. No, it's spontaneous. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky, just like that. There it is. And so that piety is natural in the sense of the natural, um, spontaneous, just coming right out of the soul. And that's a great thing. As long as my soul continues to show <coughs> natural piety, um, then that's what I want. I want to be the kind of person whose heart leaps up when he sees a rainbow that would say something good about me. Um, I don't want to force it. I want it just to be the case. So it was like that. It still is like that. He hopes it will always be like that. Past, present, and future are bound together by the rainbow, are arced together by the rainbow. The rainbow is an arc. Good.
the rainbow. It's, it's always good when someone gets it. Um, the rainbow is an arc that goes from past to present to future. Uh, what will that arc become for Frost? The parabola the boy makes as he leaps off the birch tree. Okay, good. Or just the bent birch. Um, the parabola that the, that, that the birch records of the boy having swung the birches. Um, so we could say Wordsworth um, is a swinger of rainbows, or that Frost's heart leaps up when he beholds a birch within the woods, um, which is pretty much how birches begins, right? Um, when I see birches bent to left and right across a line of straight or darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. Um, past, present, and future, and then he wants to die that way, or let me die. But no, actually, when I'm old, let me go by being a swinger of birches, returning to earth. Um, so right there, do, do I really, truly, absolutely think that Frost is saying, oh, I'm going to turn Wordsworth's rainbow into birches? I actually kind of do, but you don't have to. Um, that you can say that that's just a ridiculous stretch. Um, I don't think it. I, I think it is a ridiculous stretch, but I also think it's probably true. Um, generally, I would say such. I wouldn't um, think such things were true. In this case, I do, partly because of the um, kind of uh, black and white um, insistence that Frost gives. Um, the white birches across the line of blacker, darker trees. The idea that what you have is a kind of composition in stripes of color, except that for Frost, who's writing in some ways in a grimmer language, um, Wordsworth would never talk about baseball. Um, and it did exist, by the way. Baseball did exist when Wordsworth wrote the Intimations Ode. Um, if you've read Jane Austen, you know that. Um, but Wordsworth would never um, talk about baseball, um, as Frost does. Wordsworth wouldn't talk about a child who was lonely and lived too far from town to play baseball, but instead had to be all solitary and alone, um, although he does talk about solitude. Um, but that kind of um, black and white riff on the stripes of the rainbow I do think that's in Frost's mind. You have to realize that um, people, poets, knew the Intimations Ode by heart and at a much older age and for a much longer time and with much more interest in the poem um, than, than people knew Hemans's Casabianca by heart. Um, they were both memorized poems. But the Intimations Ode memorized um, simply through, through um, incessant reading, um, not because it was assigned to, for memorization in school, but people read the Intimations Ode incessantly. Um, so somewhere in Frost's mind, this is not hard to access. Um, so then he writes the ode. Yeah. Sorry, just a brief point about the child, the father of the men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Famously quoted by Cormac McCarthy in Blood Meridian, he uses it to describe his extremely dark protagonist, the boy. Yes, yes, indeed. So I don't know how significant that is. But. That Cormac McCarthy quotes it, it just shows that Cormac McCarthy is another person who's memorized the intimations of it. Um, no, that's absolutely true. You could say all of 
Cormac McCarthy's um, novels are about the child being father of the man. What does Wordsworth mean by that here, the child is father of the man? It's not what Cormac McCarthy means. What Cormac McCarthy means, if you know um, um, the road, you're talking about the road, right? Or Blood Meridian? Blood Meridian. Uh, the kid, Blood Meridian. Who's the kid the father of? The kid is the child? The boy is the father of his father, who, who you no longer see after the first chapter. I don't remember that in Blood Meridian, but okay, um, interesting. Trust me. I, I do implicitly. I just don't remember it. Um, it's not. It's not skepticism. It's wonder. Okay. Um, the um, what? But you could say that's true of the road also, um, which I think a lot of you have read, right? Um, no, no one's read. I thought I asked. It's a different class. You've read it. Well, on the road, there's a ten-year-old boy, and there's a father who is trying to keep him alive in um, a nuclear or volcanic winter um, that's gone on for ten years, and where basically the only food around is babies. Um, and it's it's an extraordinarily grim novel. Um, but there's a ten-year-old boy, and there's his father, and uh, the father is trying to keep him alive as they go down the road. But there's a sense in which the fact that the boy is there is keeping the father um, himself a moral being. And in that, in that sense, the child is father of the man. What does Wordsworth mean by it, though? Yeah. I think it's more it's harder to see what he means by it in this one. But when you read the intimations, though, you understand it more. He means that the, this, this light that falls on us when we're brought into the world gradually fades as we grow older. Mm -hmm. And he hopes that it will never end in My Heart Leaps Up, but in the intubation zone, it hasn't been lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if, so if in My Heart Leaps Up, just those three lines, the child, capital C, is father of the man, capital M, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. What's the and doing there? How, how does one um, proposition, one independent clause, the child is father of the man, lead to the other? Yeah, I think it means what I was saying, which is that he he hopes that the, this divine inspiration that he's had since he was a child will never end. Almost like the childlike yeah. joy in nature will right. never end, and he hopes that 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 will continue. Yeah, until into his old age. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, if you know Head Start programs or early childhood intervention or all that stuff, that all comes originally from Rousseau and Wordsworth. That is, they were the ones who said how the early childhood experience will affect the rest of your life. Um, it's not something that you can simply ignore or say, you know, um, get over it. So you had a, so you had a hard childhood, so what? Um, you're an adult now, get over it. Um, that was the theory before Rousseau and Wordsworth started thinking of childhood as um, the most important period of a person's life for the rest of their life. Um, it's what you get in Freud, the idea that um, the experience of childhood is what determines you um, psychologically for the rest of your life. Um, so it's not only Wordsworth who had that idea, but Wordsworth was the most important exponent of that idea in English um, at the time. Um, Rousseau is probably the most important exponent of the idea, period. But, um, but in England, in the English language, it's Wordsworth. Um, and you'll find it in America in people like Emerson and Thoreau who get it from Wordsworth. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's a famous triolet by, do people know Gerard Manley Hopkins? Um, never heard of him? What have you, Abby, what have you, um, what are you thinking? I was thinking about the one, is it glory to double things? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, that, so that's Pied Beauty. Um, Glory be to God for Dapple Things, for, and then, um, so Hopkins is, writes, he's worth looking at. We may look at him at some point. He writes this amazingly intense, clotted, powerful poetry. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dappled, drawn, dawn, dauphin, and the rolling underneath him, steady air, is the first line of one of his poems. First it's sentence one of one of his poems. It's actually a line and a half, yeah. Um, but I caught, um, it's the Windhover. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dappled dawn drawn falcon in the rolling underneath him, steady air, is how it begins. Morning's apostrophe S? Yes. Um, so this morning I caught morning's minion. Um, so, uh, well, just to get a sense of baffling poetry, this, is, this all goes back to um, lullabies. Uh, let's just read without analyzing. So this will be super fast. Um, uh, that poem, um, which will be on page um, 11. Sixty-six. Um, to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air and striding high there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wind in his ecstasy, then off off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing, brute beauty and valor and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told, lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier, no wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow, down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. So you should be totally baffled, but also totally energized by it. Um, it's like catching a glimpse of some dazzling um, abstract expressionist painting, um, like, like having some bright Jackson Pollock just sort of flash at you and flash away. Um, or just look at another typical Hopkins title on 1171. Um, that nature is a Heraclitean fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. Um, so just so you know that. Um, that's what that poem will say. Um, Hopkins also has a little parody of Wordsworth in a completely different style, a style called a triolet, um, unexpected for Hopkins, um, which I don't know if I can do it, but it's the way a triolet works is the first line has to be repeated two more times in the poem. Um, the first two lines actually get repeated, um, I guess it's three times. Anyhow, the poem goes, the child is father of the man. What can this mean? The words are wild. The child is father of the man? No. What the poet did write ran, the man is father of the child. The child is father of the man. What can it mean? The words are wild. Um, so Hopkins is um, having his little fun with Wordsworth. Um, but 
because the obvious thing to say is the man is father of the child. Um, but the radical thing Wordsworth is saying is no, what makes someone what they will be as an adult is what they are as a child. Um, so um, Ben has already said that, and rightly said, that um, the intimations of it is going to be somewhat different in its pessimism um, or the pessimism it goes through from the natural piety of my heart leaps up. So we begin with those lines, the child is father, as motto, the child is father of the man, and I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. And then the poem proper begins with back to the past. So was it when my life began? There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem appareled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things that I have seen I now can see no more. So what's happened? Um, he doesn't <clears throat> see the beauty in nature anymore? He doesn't see the beauty in nature anymore. Um, it's uh, gone. His heart isn't leaping up. Um, what's he doing? So there was a time when meadow grove and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. What does celestial there mean? Heavenly. Divine or heavenly, yeah. The glory and the freshness of a dream. Interesting words, glory, but also freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of your turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. Turn wheresoe'er I may. What does that, what does that imply? Yeah, Rob. Wherever his eyes go, like the beauty disappears. Yeah, what, the word turn, though. Um, it's not see whatsoever I may. What's the di what's the difference, Maya? I mean, he's he's like trying to find it. He's like searching it out, but he can't. Find it. Yeah, so he's searching for something gone. Um, he used to see the celestial light everywhere, apparelled in celestial light. Now he looks everywhere and can't find it anywhere. He turns. He's looking here. He's looking there. He's looking everywhere. To quote Dr. Seuss. Um, but he can't find it anywhere. Night and day he's looking for it. Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. Stanza two, the rainbow comes and goes. Um, so why is the rainbow the first thing he picks as an example? Yeah, and that also partly tells you why the motto for My Heart Leaps Up, I mean, why the motto for the Intimations Ode is My Heart Leaps Up. The thing that he had said in that poem, let me die if my heart does not leap up when I see a rainbow, we get reminded of by the fact that he's quoting My Heart Leaps Up at the beginning of the Intimations Ode. Um, and now we're finding that the curse that he has sort of drawn upon himself, he now has to face. 
the rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. So that sounds pretty good, right? And then what do we get to? What's the next word? But. Remember the but that we looked at in Birch's? Um, but, birch, but swinging them doesn't make them stay bent the way they do um, in birches. But yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the sense here is that, the, but with the turning and with this part, is that it's not that the world has changed. He knows that. Yeah. He's, he can see all exactly. the things that he saw before. It's him. Yes. He knows that it's him that's the problem. Exactly. Um, it's all there. Everything that he saw as a child, it's all still there. The rainbow comes and goes. And we know that his heart leapt up when he was a child. So was it when my life began that my heart leapt up when the rainbow came and went. Lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Look at how he's trying to get into the swing of things. He's trying. He's being game. He's really working at loving this beauty. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. Eh, it feels a little lame. Um, he's sputtering. The engine isn't catching. Um, the engine of his joy in the glory of nature isn't catching. He tries again. The sunshine is a glorious birth, but, but, yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So he's trying, he's failing, and what I ask you to um, ultimately think about in Birches or notice about Birches is that it's a poem that does work, that works, <laughs> how to put this, that engages in work. Um, it's a poem that tries to think through a situation. Um, it's not a poem in which Frost says, here's how I feel, now I will write it down. Um, but it's a poem in which Frost says, here's how I feel, let me write about this to see if I can get somewhere by writing about it, get somewhere else. Let me see what poetic expression will do to the feeling that is its origin, but not the only thing that the expression will convey. So these are called, the, the technical name for this is a crisis lyric. And what a crisis lyric is, is a poem that begins at a moment of crisis. The things that I have seen, I now can see no more. Um, I used to feel that I had one future, but now the future looks different. Something has happened to me and I can no longer um, hope for what I once hoped. Elegy is a very old version of crisis lyric. The person that I love is dead, and now there is nothing for me to do. And what elegies tend to do is think through the process of mourning, get to the place where the elegist can find hope again, can see a reason for not despairing, 
So elegies tend to begin in despair. But to think through, through the very act of thinking through that despair, find some way to go on. So the crisis lyric has the kind of structure of elegy, which is something is lost forever, and an attempt to work out how to deal with that now. And the poem is the act of working it out, the act of thinking it through. So we see that at the very beginning. Things used to be great, but the things which I've seen I now can see no more. Well, you're a poet. Write about the beauties of the world, and maybe you will see them again simply by writing about them. So the rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. But it doesn't work. Yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. Tries again to explain the situation he's in. So now we know, or we're about to know, that it's a May morning, that this whole poem is set on a May morning. It's a morning in May. Spring has come, but not for him. Um, he sees spring all around him, but he doesn't feel it. Um, does anyone know Coleridge's poem, Dejection, an Ode? Um, so Coleridge basically read the Intimations Ode and was so blown away. The first away. half. The yeah, the first half, the first four stanzas. And was so blown away by it that he um, wrote his own poem beginning with the words, there was a time. Um, there was a time. It actually doesn't, I think those are the first words he wrote. Um, there was a time when though my path was rough, the hope within me dallied with despair is how it begins. And the crucial line, a kind of summing up Coleridge's version, Coleridge and Wordsworth were best friends, frenemies eventually, but, um, but then friends again. Um, friends to frenemies to friends. Um, uh, Wordsworth's crucial summing up, you could say, of the Intimations Ode, is I see them all so beauteously fair. He's looking at nature around him and he says, I see them all so beauteously fair. I see not feel how beautiful they are. So I see it, but I don't feel it. That's what this is about. I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. Um, beauty is something that he can see, but not feel. Um, this idea that it's spring, and that, um, that there's beauty everywhere, and that um, one should just feel great about that. Um, Simply what it does is it intensifies a sense of exclusion from that experience of spring and of beauty. Um, here's an early English po poem by um, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey. This is page 137 of the Norton. You don't have to turn to it um, if, you, if you don't have it, because how could you? Um, but this is, um, this is a very, very direct example of its spring but not for me. Um, so the poem, it's a sonnet called the Suta Season, which means the sweet season, um, page 137. 
and Sari is describing how it's spring. That's great. Um, April is the kindest month, right? Um, well, no. Um, the suta season that bud and bloom forth brings, the sweet season that bud and bloom forth brings, with green hath clad the hill and eke the vale, the nightingale with feathers new she sings, the turtle, that is the dove, to her make, that is her mate, hath told her tale. Summer is come, for every spray now springs. The heart hath hung his old head on the pail, the bucken break, his winter coat he flings, the fishes float with new repair at scale, the adder all her slough away she slings, the swift swallow pursueth the flies small, the busy bee her honey now she mings. Winter is worn that was the flower's bale. And thus I see among these pleasant things each care decays. And yet my sorrow springs. So 13 and a half lines of it's a glorious day, and then a half line, but not for me. I'm still full of sorrow. Winter is gone. Life is everywhere. And yet my sorrow springs. So that's what Wordsworth is also saying we're about to find out. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song. So, it's a beautiful day. The birds are singing a joyous song. And while the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. And yet my sorrow springs. So now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound us to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. So lots of people have spent many, many, many classroom hours on that phrase, timely utterance. Um, he has a thought of grief but then a timely utterance gave that thought relief. Um, what do you think it means, timely utterance? Okay, let me ask a simpler question. What would it mean for an utterance to give relief to a thought? Yeah. It would mean that, that the words ex expressed the intangibility of a thought in such a way as to make them tangible. And okay. I guess timely utterance ties into that with not just do the words have to be right, the time in which they are said has to be right, perhaps referring to the people who hear the utterance as well. Okay, okay, yeah. Could he be referring to the act of writing out this poem, of giving shape to his, his grief in a way that he can try to deal with it? Yeah, that, that um, saying something. So it's a beautiful day, but he's filled with grief. But then saying something gives that thought relief with the result that he is strong again. So that what we have here in two lines, let's say, or in three lines, is it was a beautiful day and yet my sorrow sprung. But then I said something and got rid of my grief. I relieved. I, 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 the pent-up grief was released. I found relief for the grief that was building up within me. 
Um, how obvious a metaphor that would be for Wordsworth, I'm not sure, because we now think of that sort of relief on, um, on the structure of a steam engine, that is that steam builds up and then gets released, and that relieves pressure. Um, Wordsworth would have had some idea of that, but not a mechanical idea. Um, nevertheless, you're carrying a burden, and then you put it down, and that's a relief. Um, so somehow this thought is very heavy for him, but then he manages to um, express it, press it out, literally express, press it out, get rid of it um, by uttering it, and then he feels better. So for a poet, what would a timely utterance be? A poem, yeah. So what we could say is, but the question is how literally do we want to take this, but what we could say that more or less, here's the situation that he's in. He starts out thinking the world is totally wonderful. Then he moves to, let's say, experience from innocence. And even though there's laughter the voices of children are heard on the hill, um, and the days of the youth arise. The days of his youth arise in his mind. Um, he's not filled with the joy that surrounds him, but filled with some other grimmer emotion. The very gaiety of the natural world outside him contrasts and maybe causes the grief that he's feeling. But then he says something about it and he feels better. So we could say stage one of life, to the extent that we're looking at stages of life here, stage one of life is I'm perfectly happy in the world, which is so beautiful, so happy that I don't even say so. I don't even notice how happy I am. I'm filled with rapture, um, what he will call in another poem, dizzy raptures. I'm just filled with that. Um, if anyone calls me in, I, all I will say to them is, no, no, let us play, for it is yet day. It's just great. Then I get a little bit older, and I see others filled with the rapture that I used to be filled with, and I feel grief. To me alone, there came a thought of grief. Why? We don't know. It just may be the process of growing up, or it may be connected with the fact that he's turning and seeing all this beauty and all this gaiety and all this jollity, to use the word he's about to use, and yet he doesn't feel what he once felt, or he doesn't see what he once saw. So he, so he feels grief. But the result of that is he writes a poem. And writing the poem then becomes for him an occasion for joy. And I again am strong. So that he might be a little bit like the innocent nurse when we get to the idea that a timely utterance gave that thought relief. I'm not like the children on the hill. But when I celebrate them, I feel good too.
Exactly, exactly. Um, so now there's a kind of structure of poetic existence, you could say. And the structure of poetic existence is something like a good reason to be a poet is that you can take joy in your losses by writing poems which are filled with the intensity that you are registering has gone out of the world. You used to have a really intense relation to the world and you saw everything and it was covered with celestial light, apparelled in celestial <clears throat> light. And now you see that for others, there's that experience and you feel grief. But grief is really good for poems. And so you write a poem. And writing that poem fills you with joy, converts the grief to joy. The expression of grief becomes its own kind of joy. That's the paradox of poetry from the beginning of time, that the expression of grief can become its own kind of joy. That we think we're, we're, we're exhilarated by great poetry, even if what the poetry says is sad. Sadness becomes exhilarating. Um, not only poetry, um, but art in general. That sadness becomes a joy within art. Not because it denies sadness, not because it's untrue to sadness, but somehow those two things are both there. And if you're a poet, that is a really good reason to be a poet and a really good thing to be able to count on, that you can do that. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the final conclusion he comes to, at least in the first half. Go on. I think the, the conclusion he kind of, he tries to come to at the very, at the very least in this last stanza is that somehow he can make himself happy again by immersing himself in this. Yeah. If only in the poetic world, not yeah. in the real world. Yeah. He describes all these wonderful things going on around him. Yeah. As if, if I just like stick my head in this big barrel of, of happiness, yes. it'll rub off on me somehow. Yeah, exactly. Nicely put. So, a timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. And as soon as he's strong, he feels the intensity of the natural world again. Look at all this nature that I can celebrate by well, as you put it, sticking my head in this barrel of, of happiness. Um, look at all this nature that's all there for me, and all I had to do was join with it as a poet. The cataracts, the cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. Such a great image. Um, that is, you can hear the sound of the waterfalls, and it's like the sound of a trumpet somehow. It's so deafening and so loud. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. Again, an amazing and mysterious line. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. And all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity. And with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So 
Um, the young lambs are bounding, we know at the beginning of the stanza, as to the tabor sound. Um, that's because there's a shepherd who is shepherding the young lambs around. Um, and everyone is happy, including that child. And now again, like the nurse, he just loves this experience of happiness all around him. It's a vicarious experience, but all the more intense for that. That is, this, including the boy who's so joyful here, is the experience of this time. And so he addresses them. Um, how many of you have read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? Um, so in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, how many people know about it? It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three by thy long gray beard and glittering eyes. Now wherefore stoppest, stoppest thou me? Um, the wedding guests are there within, and I am next of kin. He holds him with his, um, what is it, hand? Scrawny hand or something. There was a ship, quoth he. And then the mariner describes how he shoots the albatross, and terrible things happen. And he finally gets saved when he sees some beautiful water snakes in the sea. And he says, um, they were just so, uh, he says, oh, happy living things. No tongue their beauty might declare. Surely some kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. So there's a moment of blessing that he sees happiness, pure, spontaneous happiness in life. And even though he doesn't feel it anymore, he blesses those who do feel it. Unaware, surely some saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. But just doing that, blessing them, saying, oh, I'm so happy to see that happiness, that's what becomes saving for him that he blesses others. And that's what Wordsworth is doing here. As I say, they really were extremely close friends. They published the most revolutionary book in the history of English poetry of the last 250 years when they published a book together in <coughs> 1798 called, with the oxymoronic title, Lyrical Ballads. Um, that's, it's such a familiar title to people, or the concept is so familiar, um, that the fact that that title is an oxymoron is something that people have forgotten. Um, but a ballad is something that tells a story. A lyric is something that expresses an emotion. A lyrical ballad is um, what they're declaring there is that this is a very strange mashup of deep psychological expressiveness and storytelling. The stories that are told are stories of human psychology rather than stories of ghosts coming out of the grave to haunt the um, young women who have murdered them um, as more standard ballads, storytelling ballads are. Um, they published that book, Wordsworth and Coleridge, anonymously and um, without, therefore, making a distinction in its original edition between the poems Coleridge wrote and the poems Wordsworth wrote. Um, this was a set of poems that these two poets, one of whom was 26 and one of whom was 28 years old, um, gave to the world as a new kind of poetry, anonymously as a new kind of poetry. People didn't know how many people had written those poems, one or two or many. Um, and in fact, some of the lyrical ballads are collaborations. Um, 
they will always in books be assigned to one or the other, but if you read the notes or read their, their biographies or autobiographies, you'll know that they helped each other in the poems. Um, the albatross, for example, is Wordsworth's idea. Um, so um, comparing Coleridge's thoughts about spontaneous blessing with Wordsworth's thoughts about spontaneous blessing makes perfect sense because that's what they talked about all the time. So there he is saying, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thy happy shepherd boy, ye blessed creatures. I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. Who's going to pick up that idea of the heavens laughing at when the blessed creatures are just so happy? Yeah, cradle song. Good. Um, ye blessed creatures, I've heard, heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. The fullness of your bliss, I feel. I feel it all. So not only does he see it, but he feels it. Oh, evil day if I were sullen. While earth herself is adorning the sweet May morning and the children are culling on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers. While the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear, but there's a tree of many one. Not a birch tree, but Frost would have wanted it to be one. But there's a tree of many one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet. Anyone know where the pansy gets its name? What its French name is? It's actually an, an anglicization of a French name. Pense means in French pansy, but also thought. Yeah. So this flower of thought, this thoughtful flower, the pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. What is that tale? Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So that's what you're calling the first half, the first part of the poem. What happens then? What? It's not, it's not there. It's, it's not there, and Wordsworth stops writing the poem for two years. So this poem all takes place on a single day, but he gets to the end of stanza four, and he abandons the poem. The poem was meant to get him to feel vicariously the joy that he'd lost as intensely as when he had it. And he almost gets there, and then he doesn't. There's a tree of many one. If this were a symbolic tree, what tree would it be? Tree of knowledge. Yeah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. No, he can't get past it. Both of a single field that I've looked upon, both of them speak of something that is gone. Something that's gone. Hang on to the word something. I hope you're amazed by how quickly we're going through this. I hope you've never experienced anything like this. And we will talk more about it on Wednesday.